Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. If you enjoy the podcast, please do give us a review on your podcast player and let me know on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Lucy Gower. Lucy is founder and director at Lucidity. She's a coach, trainer, and facilitator specializing in giving people the confidence and tools to think creatively, develop ideas, and make their innovations happen. She's the best-selling author of The Innovation Workout and a global speaker on innovation. And Lucy's background is in fundraising, having held innovation roles at NSPCC for a number of years. And I just found out on LinkedIn, she's another former NASA like myself at National Autistic Society. We'll be discussing, you guessed it, creativity and innovation. And as ever, the aim is to share ideas, tips, examples, etc., that might help you in your own work. So welcome to the podcast, Lucy. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. Shall we start off just by defining creativity and innovation a little bit? Particularly innovation is just one of those words that's thrown around in the sector and it is in almost every set of funding criteria that you see for new programmes and things. So what when we're going to be talking about innovation and creativity what what are you thinking about right yeah I think that's such a good question so for me I see creativity as having ideas coming up with new concepts but it's essentially about problem solving and we're all good at it as human beings we can all do do creativity so creativity is the having the ideas bit however you do that and we'll talk about that in a bit innovation is how I'm defining it is how you action those ideas and I would add to that and say that it's what you do differently to achieve your mission. So if I can dig into that a little bit more, um, it's about doing something differently. If someone else is already doing it, um, you don't and you copy. <laughs> Stealing other people's ideas, is, if it's out in the in the general world, is fine. Why invent things that you don't have to? But if you're doing it differently, it counts as innovation for you, for your organisation. And it has to be all about achieving your mission um, you can, like you say, innovation gets put in front of job titles, projects, funding bids, um, but it really is about where you're focusing in order that you can make a bigger impact to the cause that you work for. So they're both about solving problems. And in every organisation, I think um, it's about defining what it means for you. So I work across a, a lot of different organisations, mostly in the not-for-profit sector. And I think the most important thing is being really clear about what innovation means in your organization in your context because it can fall into different buckets so it could be incremental innovation all the tiny changes that you make that will add up to making a bigger impact or it could be about product development like what's the next big fundraising product is a question that I get asked quite a lot or it could be about radical innovation big picture how do we um change the business model entirely in order to make more impact yeah and I think so often it's like people think about innovation as being like the big new shiny thing and thinking about like new tech and different digital solution things like that but more often it's more incremental and it's more like the kind of smaller changes to services and things that people make without really thinking about it just because they're responding to what they've learned from you know the people they're supporting and things like that isn't it so yeah I think it comes back to that definition doesn't it of how people think about innovation absolutely and I think you hit the nail on the head every charity is already doing innovation because mm. they solve a problem and it's just sometimes how we label it and what I find 
I've been doing this for coming up to 13 years now. And I use the word innovation less and less mm. because sometimes it has that effect on people where they go, oh, well, I'm not an innovator. I don't have innovation in my job title. So that's not for me. And that's not the case at all. If you work in a charity, by definition, you're solving problems. You're an innovator in one way or another. Um, but it just doesn't get labelled as that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of it, I guess, is more about continuous improvement, isn't it? Like continually learning and improving what you're doing and building on that kind of past success and track record and, and learning rather And when you use the word innovation, people think of like something completely new. Yeah. Like new tech or uh, yeah. new platform or a new CRM. And it can be that. And it can equally be something much smaller. And I suppose where I focus my work is around people, like how people need to work together in order to innovate, or I often say make change happen or make more impact. Yeah. Yeah. The transformational sort of innovation. I think often people are only really thinking about that when there's some kind of existential crisis. Uh, you know, they've lost like 80% of their funding for, you know, a major contract's gone or something. And it's like, okay, how do we completely? redesign what we do and how we're funded and things like that so more often than not it's kind of like why would you massively change something about the way that you operate unless something's going wrong I suppose if you know if things are going well then you you build on that don't you yes and I think over the last few years I've seen massive innovation across all sectors but specifically in the charity sector in response to covid so that's a really good example of how many organisations would have to change their ways of raising money, their services, and responded really, really fast. And now I see lots of organisations sort of reverting back to what we're calling normal. But I'd argue that we're not going back to normal because we've all changed through our experience of living through a global pandemic. And I think it is harder to make change happen if things seem to be going all right but we're kind of wired to stay the same rather than to change. So mm. actually the pandemic shone a real spotlight on how things might be more effective and make more impact if we do them differently. And it would be great if we can learn from that and apply that yeah. to not quite such a burning platform because the world's changing fast. Uh, yeah, I've got two or three questions probably in relation to that. First of all, let's start with what are some of the barriers to innovation so you said you know people kind of tend not to want change and you know kind of want to get back to normal as you say in kind of inverted commas yeah what are some of those sort of barriers that stop innovation yeah good question so there are many (laughs) and I think the biggest one that I come across is fear fear of failure and fear of success so more generally fear of change And this really interested me. So I started to dig into it a little bit more. And if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, where he talks about human psychology and how we're wired, we're basically, we crave certainty. And if anything isn't certain, we see it as a threat and our kind of fight, flight, freeze response gets triggered. And so fear of change is fear of uncertainty. And so we're kind of wired to stay the same. So I work with organisations They might have a declining donor base, but almost it feels safer to stick with something that's declining slowly over time. 
than to make a change happen. And there's not a judgment in that, but it's helpful to understand that. And if you can be able to call it out, that kind of reduces some of the barrier. So fear is the biggest thing. And then I think linked to that is lack of time, lack of resource, lack of capacity. And I don't know a single person that I'm working with that has any spare time. Um, People often talk to me about feeling overwhelmed, feeling like they're on a hamster wheel. And so there's no time to step back and think. And when we're feeling stressed out, overwhelmed, it's really hard to think creatively because we're in survival mode. And so being able to carve time out to think is a really big challenge when we're juggling lots of different things. And then I think, you know, I work with a lot of fundraising teams. That I've got a really long list of barriers, but I'm giving you my top three. I think in terms of fundraising, there's a kind of a lack of um, long-term thinking. So if you look in the corporate sector where innovation happens, there is more capacity to test and learn and not to get things right straight away. Within a fundraising portfolio, you might test something, but you might need a return on it in the first year or so. And so that really limits your ability to innovate because most things don't work brilliantly first time round. So I believe that there's a fundraising portfolio graveyard somewhere of ideas that just didn't get past the first test, but might have flourished if they were just given a little bit more time, energy and effort. But when something doesn't work, we go fight, flight, freeze. Or can we we'll just pretend it never happened? Or what can we kind of get away with almost? Like, mm-hmm. do we need to admit that it didn't work? And that comes back to fear. If we can be better at talking about failure, then we can help to overcome some of those fear barriers about making change happen. Yeah. Uh, you just reminded me, Howard Lycast a little while ago about uh, who's thinking about writing some kind of book or something about like all the fundraising ideas that didn't happen. Uh, so there might be there might be something you can share with him there or or some connections maybe. I think he was looking uh, for people to share their ideas that didn't kind of come to fruition. Uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe you can help out with that. So coming back to responses to the pandemic, Pretty much everyone did change the way that they work. Like we had to because there was lockdown and then everyone shifted to online. And I suppose, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what you've seen from organisations you work with and, and wider in the sector. Because mm-hmm. I think that there are examples of creativity and innovation, but then there are lots of organisations that pretty much just carried on doing the same thing they were doing. But instead of meeting people in person, they were doing the same sessions on Zoom. People were working from home rather than in the office, but that was pretty much the only change that was made. And then as soon as you could go back to the previous, then either you did fully or you just like you kept the Zoom stuff as well as the in-person stuff. Like it doesn't feel like there's much of a sort of innovative response. It's kind of changing what you have to and not really thinking about it any further than that. But I'm sure there are kind of lots of stronger examples out there as well of people kind of finding new ways to fundraise and run services and things. What are some of the sort of good and bad examples you might have seen? Right. Okay. Broadly speaking, I think we responded as a sector really incredibly to the pandemic. Many organisations saw a real increase in the services that they needed to provide, yet weren't able to provide them in a traditional way. And we moved quickly. So some of the examples, switching to online 
it might have been a necessity. So you might say, oh, it doesn't feel that innovative because we had to do it. We could choose between which platform we use. But actually, in terms of for some charities and some services, in terms of access, there's pros and cons there, I think, because more people, if they had technology, could access services. Um, But if you didn't have the technology, that created a barrier. So I think on the one hand, more services were accessible by people who had technology. But the downside is if you didn't have the tech enabled, you might not be able to access those services if you were used to walking somewhere and going and meeting in person. On the other hand, when I look at fundraising, so many organisations will have in-person events that just stopped happening and they switch really quickly to virtual, some with much success. There was one organisation that I was talking to about their carol concert and they had their carol concert in a London church. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but let's say they could fit a thousand people in that church. And they had a conversation in their office. It was like, this will never work online. People want to come to the church and they want to, you know, be part of the experience. And they got 18,000 people logging online. Now I know that that was of the time. I mean, if you could go, you might choose to go to a carol concert rather than watch online, but it busted a whole load of assumptions about what people would and wouldn't do. And I think that's really key for creative thinking and innovation because we make loads of assumptions about everything and that can get in the way of doing something new because we revert back to how things have always done. And I think that's what I'm seeing now with us trying to return to normal. And then I think in terms of how we work, which is interesting, we haven't cracked that yet. It's been great in one respect in that flexible working and working from home is something that pretty much every organisation needs to offer, which they didn't before. But we're still really learning And I think that not being in an office is great for some people, but terrible for others in the same way that being in an office is great for some people and terrible for others. And I think we're still really navigating that. And the bit that interests me is the impact that has on creativity. So many people get their ideas, get inspired by bouncing ideas around with people in a room. And when you're not in a room, it's way more difficult when you're just looking at people through a screen it's not the same. You can't pick up on body language. You're not moving about in the same way. There's some, something gets lost. So there's brilliant technology that could connect people, but I am still feeling that teams need to get together in person every so often to help to drive that creativity. And I'm certainly running a lot more in the room, team days, away days, thinking sessions, strategy days. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, isn't it, in terms of navigating that thing of people working from home and how that impacts on teamwork and creativity and and also like the learning and development of more junior members of the team and things like that because I think you can get together every now and then but then it's not the same as kind of being together every day is it and like building up those relationships and learning from other people in the team who have more experience and you sort of managers and directors and just all of that stuff that I suppose when we were working in fundraising offices a few years back like that that was kind of a big part of your learning and development came through that just kind of being in and around it and then going to things and chatting to people after work over a drink and stuff like that so I know organizations are doing things for that so I know like I heard Deborah Alcock-Tyler talking recently saying that the DSC they 
do like a kind of working from home, but they'll do a sort of every morning at the start of the day, they'll do like a, a sort of check in or get together on Zoom and then something at the end of the day or towards the end of the day to kind of check in on how everyone's been getting on and stuff. So I know you can do those types of things to kind of make sure everyone's doing okay and feel supported and stuff, but yeah, it definitely feels like you would be missing just some of that sort of natural learning and also the sort of relationship building that then helps to kind of be creative as a team and things like that. Absolutely agree. And if I if I think about early on in my career, how much I learned from observing and watching the behaviours of other peers, senior leaders, the stuff that you pick up without even really knowing it, that you've got to be, as a leader, you need to be more deliberate about leading by example and showing some of those behaviours. And as a learner, you don't even realise how much you're you're learning. I think that's the point. And I know that when I worked at NSPCC, huge organisation, and my role was around innovating, which was helping to, some of it was helping to break down silos and to kind of help and encourage people to work differently, to test out new products and services. A massive part of my role, when I look back now, was about building relationships. And I used to walk the floor, I'd go and make coffee somewhere else because I knew somebody that I needed to have on board would, sounds a bit stalkerish, but I mean, someone I knew I had to have on board was making coffee at 11 o'clock. So I'd go and make my coffee and have a chat with them. And that broke, you built relationships. I'd often go for a drink after work because I know that if I'd had a drink with somebody, you know, as part of a team thing the next day or week, it was much easier for me to go and have a chat with them or get a meeting with them and say, look, I need your help with this thing. Or how do you think about this? It just broke those barriers down. And I'm not saying it's not possible online. I think it just, you have to be more deliberate. It's harder work. And I think it takes a little bit longer. And for me, innovation and creativity is all about people and how people collaborate, how they work together, how they find solutions together. And it's hard work. So it's even harder now even though we've got great technology that connects people to forge those relationships. So if I was leading a team, I would be putting budget in to make sure that there were some socials, um, that there were regular get-togethers. If you had used to have a team day once a year, I'd suggest you do them more frequently if you're all working remotely and you don't have a chance to get together. Yeah, yeah not necessarily like a huge event, but you could do casual informal stuff probably every month at least I would have thought to you know if you're really trying to get the team working well together and you are just working from home all the time then I think yeah a lot more of that sort of stuff's needed to be built in and I suppose in terms you know some of the stuff you traditionally do on away days around exploring new ideas and just building in more of those points during the year because it's not going to happen naturally in the way that you would kind of do it on an ad hoc basis when you're all just in the office or, you know, having lunch together or whatever it might be. Exactly. And one of the things, so I run a network, I believe everything is through networks, your next opportunity. It's all about who you know. And that's certainly been my experience. And one of the things that I do in my network, I run a get it done session every month, which is an online session. People join for a couple of hours with their list of things they want to get done, speaking to that big barrier of how to carve out time. There's also accountability there. So, you know, you share what you're going to do and other people check in with you at the end of your first 45 minutes. And so things like that, you don't need to have an external person facilitate that. It might be thinking about doing that within your team. How are you connecting people? 
but also ask them what is it that they need and want. And it'll be different for every team. And I think that is why we're still navigating it. There isn't a blueprint of how you do it yet. We're still early in exploring for ourselves. Yeah. World looks like. Zooming out a little bit from that, I guess, and building on, like, obviously we had the pandemic was a huge external change. We've kind of gone straight from that into the cost of living crisis. So there's sort of big changes in the wider economy and socioeconomic changes. The needs of kind of both your donors and also the communities that you serve and provide support for are changing all the time and like yeah people's needs and also people's expectations and the way people live their lives doing more things online but you know in in all sorts of different ways how can charities respond to that in terms of how can you think creatively and innovate in response to that because I suppose everyone is looking at that sort of macro environment and thinking okay like the funding environment's more challenging for most organizations there's different needs and expectations how can people go about that so i think i'm going to start with just looking after your people like working in not-for-profit sector with all the things that you've just talked about that's going on is stressful there's pressure to bring in the money there's pressure to deliver the services and this all relies on your people being well really not just lip service to looking after your your people but really making sure that they're okay checking in with them helping them to work with them on targets and objectives that are stretched but achievable and really like nurturing your people is the first thing and when we're stressed out it's really difficult to think creatively because we're just in survival mode and then i think in terms of broadly speaking innovation and creativity it has to be all around the needs of your audience so whether that is your service users or your donors your supporters your volunteers it's really easy to kind of get people together in a room and go well what should we do to solve this particular problem but we're in our own echo chambers so the more you can involve your service users your donors your supporters whoever your audience is in innovating around what it is they need, what problem you're solving with and for them, the more likely your ideas that you are testing out are going to meet their needs. I so often see, you know, a team getting together and going, oh, this is a great idea, but with not enough insight to really, they think it's a great idea, but they're not the service user or the audience. And sometimes what we used to do, and I do with some clients, and we definitely did it at NSPCC, we would, in a meeting room, to remind ourselves that it's not about us and what we think, it was about our donors, we'd have an empty chair that was the donor's chair. And it was a nudge to go, hang on a minute, have we got carried away with our thinking and ideas? How are we making sure that what we're talking about here is relevant to, in this context, the people we existed to serve, to the donor group that we were talking about? So my shortcut to my Ramble is the more you can understand about your audiences and how you can support them, that is your starting point for innovation. It's not about the ideas, it's about the problem that you are solving for your audience. Yeah, when you say it like that, it's quite straightforward, isn't it? Like just go out and talk to people. <laughs> just remember, well, yeah. yeah, talking to people, there's surveys, there's focus groups, um, bearing in mind that what people say and do could be different. Yeah. Which is why I suppose some of jargon words methodology that sits with innovation and creativity, you know, around testing and learning is really important. How can you test something with a group as small and risk free as possible to get the real data rather than go big with something that might not work? That little tests 
little experiments and you learn from them and build is definitely a way of getting insight. Yeah, it's obviously just another reason why it's important to engage with people with lived experience in all aspects of of your organisation's kind of decision making, isn't it? Which obviously is getting more sort of attention, like in yes in the sector at the moment, in terms of opinion pieces and in terms of funding criteria and questions and things like that. I think it's lived experience, but it's also diversity of thought. So yeah. I was running a session yesterday about unconscious bias and you know how it's really easy to, for example, recruit in your own image. Oh, yeah, and you get an echo chamber effect, kind of a group thing where the same ideas turn round and round. So lived experience, yeah, absolutely, but different experience where Mm. someone will go, well, why do you do it like this? And if you've been in an organisation for a long time, your answer is like, well, that's just because how we do it. Mm. So cognitive diversity is really important. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, there are lots of different ways to engage with people. And like I'm working with, local mental health organization at the moment on their strategy development and talking about how to engage their service users in the process they're like yeah we tend to do these things but then we just always get like the same six people come and tell us what they think and each of them has like their own specific issue that they will tell us about so I think there's just something to be said about like having those multiple different levels of engagement so it's like having having people on your board having people on your staff team giving people ways to engage, which include like surveys, focus groups, individual conversations, all of those different things, and ensuring that you reach out to different parts of your community so that it's not just the people that are most likely to engage that always come and give their view, which isn't necessarily representative. If you're not getting people from other parts of that community, then you need to be proactive about doing it rather than just kind of opportunity in an email on a website and, oh, look, it's the same people came again. Exactly. And if you're accidentally excluding people from feeding in, then that has a kind of ripple effect on the the services that you're able to provide. Maybe you're excluding the people that need you most because they've not been able to be part of the process at the beginning. Perhaps they don't have an email address and that's much harder to reach them. So really thinking about access and who are the people that you're trying to reach and are you using the right channels to reach them is really key. All stages of the process. We've covered a little bit, I guess, already about different ways of thinking. Is It seems like a lot of this is to do with how people think and the, the mindset that people come with. Anything else that you can say on, on that sort of, you know, what people need to do in terms of getting thinking in the right way? Yeah, I think that um, how, our, how our brains are wired is that we, again, if I refer back to Daniel Kahneman and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which if you haven't read, I'd really, really recommend. He talks about our brain is in system one and system two. So system one is autopilot. So if you ever get to work and don't remember how you got there, Mm. you always go to the same coffee shop. You follow the same patterns of existence um, because it's it's a shortcut. You don't have to think about it. It's efficient. It's a good way of being. The thing is with system one is that we've really easily fall into the same patterns of thinking. We follow the same neural pathways. And if we're thinking about creativity as about making new connections, it's hard to do. He talks about system two, which is where you have to think and make new connections. And to think creatively, it can be helpful to start from a different perspective. 
So if you Google how to think creatively, there's a million pages that will give you all sorts of different tools and techniques. And if you ever go to an ideas workshop, there's often an excruciating icebreaker, um, which is all about getting you in a different mindset, a different perspective to how you normally think. There's a few that I, over the years, have found work for most people. So one of them is just thinking, well, where else has my problem been solved? And how can I use that? So my example that I love is um, when Great Ormond Street were looking at ways to get sick babies from intensive care to the operating theatre. They thought, who works really fast as a team? And they went to Formula One because Formula One turned the cars around in the pit stop in a matter of seconds. And they went and observed how they worked and they took some of that knowledge back to how they worked as a team in this scenario. But the pit stop, the car comes in and people work around it. Um, With this scenario they're walking around with a trolley and they're moving a child from one place to another so they went well who works really well together moving and not crashing into each other so they went to dance choreographers and they learned from them so this kind of other world where's your problem been solved somewhere else in a different context starts you off in a different in a different place and then my other one is just that it's just asking what if what if we change the rules for how we do things so say if you have a I don't know a regular email that goes out well, what if you couldn't email what would you do and come up with all of the ideas sensible and not sensible and those starting points help you follow different neural pathways and come up with different ideas and I think one of the challenges is that we stop at the first idea because we're busy it feels safer and we don't have time and we don't push ourselves. So if you've had an idea that's been churning around for ages, I'll put it to one side and go, what if we didn't do that and keep going? And I often do this in workshops. Um, we'll be very careful about setting what's the problem that we're trying to solve. People will go away for a bit and come up with a lot of good suggestions. And then anything that's been talked about before or been done before, cross off and then spend another 10 minutes keeping going. And the quality of ideas and the originality of ideas in that second round is exceptional. The ideas at first were good, but the second round, just another 10 minutes, makes a massive difference. And that comes back to that that fear is creeping in again, because something that feels familiar feels less fearful than something that is perhaps genuinely new that may be able to make a bigger impact. So fear and time. When you're doing those sort of sessions, you mentioned like a, a terrible icebreaker. Have you got a favourite kind of either icebreaker or just like a little exercise to do at the beginning of sessions that get people in a bit more of a creative mood? So if you go to a workshop and you'll set an icebreaker, it's normally to get you in a different perspective, exactly as you say. And I think the thing to think about is that you don't want people to feel uncomfortable or fearful. It needs to connect to what it is that you are doing and it needs to edge them out of their comfort zone a little bit and get them thinking differently but not too much so if I'm doing a workshop around storytelling I'll often ask people to share their favorite story when they were little it links very much to some of the learning points there's not a right or a wrong no one feels on the spot it's not right that you liked Harry Potter better than you liked chicken licking or whatever it is that people say so you're making people what you're really trying to do is get people into a different mindset, but you're trying to create safety so that people feel safe to say anything. And I think your icebreaker needs to connect to the learning point, even in a very subtle way. 
And you need to explain why you're asking people to do it. So sharing something about themselves or their experience that isn't a right or wrong answer where there's no pressure, you know, the first single that you bought, anything that just gets people talking and building and building rapport. The one thing that I think works really well is just asking people how they're feeling today. Um, Sometimes I ask for a scale of one to five. So one is rubbish and five is brilliant. And that can just help you as a facilitator to pitch how you're doing. If everyone's a one, they need a bit of nurturing. You ask why, like what's happening? Sometimes the team's in consultation, but no one told you. And actually, if that's the case, it's probably not appropriate to try and get them all happy thinking creatively. But if everyone's a five, then I don't know. Again, ask why and then try and bottle it. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a room full of fives. That's probably quite rare. Yeah, I work with actually another mental health organisation and so they're like from a sort of therapeutic background and before we ever do group sessions and stuff like they always do a sort of check in with how everyone's doing at the beginning. So And it's, uh, you know, like, how are you feeling today kind of thing so people can bring if they're like a bit down or a bit stressed or like if they've got some kind of anxiety about the session we're about to lead or whatever it might be massively helpful as a facilitator so you can I mean if it's a small group I can't help myself always want to kind of respond individually to try and reassure people if there's any of that sort of anxiety and stuff like that but yeah just really useful insight so you know like where everyone is at before you kind of get into the detail of what it is you're going to be doing exactly so it's more about creating an environment where people feel safe to bounce ideas around or say you know you want the truth from them so so a a place of what google would call psychological safety and less about forced fun Mm. if you've ever been in a workshop where you've had forced fun that doesn't feel very comfortable and you don't really feel like many people don't feel like contributing and you've got a whole range of different styles and some people will love being in a group bouncing ideas around other people less so so i think as important as the sort of icebreaker setting the scene bit is making sure that the exercise you're setting people give people the opportunity to do a bit of reflection on their own Mm -hmm. give people the opportunity to feed in be careful that you're not listening to the loudest voice um my rule is hippos go last hippos being highest individual paid person in the organization but a shortcut for the influential person yeah if they go first in an idea session it's really hard to have a different or contrary Mm -hmm. idea so them going last can be helpful for that kind of freshness of thinking. Yeah, nothing. Seems like more people recognise now that there's a strength to getting people to like write down their thoughts individually rather than always just doing a kind of what do you think and letting people shout out and then you just get the same kind of more extrovert, confident people giving their ideas and then some of the people that maybe a bit more introvert who have really great ideas but are not contributing. And as you say, it's kind of once there's other stuff out there, it's, if you've got something really radically different, then it's maybe harder to say it. Whereas yeah. if you get everyone writing stuff down, then yeah, you, you probably get better results. Yeah, uh, but, but obviously having a mix of the two as well, not just making it a session for introverts. <laughs> exactly, because you've got a whole range of different yeah. needs yeah. in the room. Is there anything else in terms of like practical things that people can take away if they're, I know we've we've covered quite a lot of stuff around ways of thinking and also some practical stuff in there. You got any other kind of relatively easy tips that people can follow? 
So I think if we're talking about in your organisation, how you're helping innovation to flourish, for me, it is so much about culture. So as a leader, I think that piece around leading by example, what are the behaviours that you can model that enable innovation? So learning from failure. So being able to share your failures, creating an environment where if something doesn't work so well, it's okay to talk about it and then learn from it and move and move on. That is the single biggest thing that I think an organisation can do to enable this culture where you can test and learn. Because if it doesn't work, you haven't you haven't failed because you can't have a failed test. You've just tested something that has worked better than or worse than something else. And then I think my other practical tip is around, as I said at the beginning, just being clear on what innovation means and what you're trying to achieve. Not a right or wrong, but just a shared understanding and then commit to that. And what I see a lot is that there'll be an innovation strategy. It may not deliver fruit in year one or year two and then we look at budgets and we get a bit nervous and that gets reduced or taken away I've seen that happen lots of times over the last sort of 15 years in organizations and then it's cyclical it'll come around again and an innovation team will be put in place but people are feeling anxious because they've seen what's happened before so I think it's better to be consistent and commit than it is to kind of go big and then pull back again yeah, and you mentioned um, the Thinking Fast and Slow book, which I've not read, but I've heard recommended a couple of times. So maybe should I'm having a little bit of a break from nonfiction books at the moment. But what other sort of reading and resources and things would you recommend if people want to kind of explore this area more? So obviously, as my book Innovation Workout, which gives you kind of like a ten step process, and um, the two books. In addition to thinking fast and slow, there's Rebel Ideas and Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, which are excellent. And then Messy by Tim Harford, all about innovation. And again, focusing really on innovation culture, um, how you think differently, and this really important piece around learning from failure. And in Black Box Thinking, that's all about learning from failure. And a line that really struck me is that those failures or those things that don't work so well are hard earned So really, it's your job to help other people learn from what you've learned and be able to feel brave enough to share it. And then that comes back to having this psychological safety in your team where it feels okay to do it. Right. Thank you. I know you've got stuff through Lucidity as well, haven't you, that people can engage with. Uh, I'm blanking on it, but are you still doing the Lucidity network? Is that still a thing or is there other stuff that you would signpost people to? So the Lucidity Network is my membership network, which is born out of all the things I've talked about today, like building the confidence and skills to be able to innovate. I'm not accepting new members right now. And if you sign up to my email newsletter, you'll be the first to know when I open the doors on that again. Um, My email newsletter gives tips, tools around innovation. I quite often run free webinars, those get it done sessions that I mentioned earlier. And then for those of you interested in innovation and how your team think differently i have an innovation animals quiz it's a two-minute quiz lots of teams are using this as their kind of starting point to start talking about innovation and how you approach innovation differently everybody's different different needs some people love bouncing ideas around some people like getting to the root cause of a problem some people like coming up with solutions if you know what that looks like in your team you're in way better position to be able to 
help them be their best. So it's a two-minute quiz. It's designed to be playful. You find out whether you're a squirrel or a penguin or a meerkat because there's a real connection between creativity and mindset being playful. Um, so it's, you know, it's designed to help take the sort of, not stigma as such out of innovation, but, you know, innovation is a buzzword. If you're a meerkat looking for a turtle, all of a sudden it seems a little bit ridiculous and it's less scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Takes away some of that dread when someone tells you you're going to an innovation workshop and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Is there any final thoughts, any request to the listener? I think if you're listening to this, I'm hoping that you're thinking about what innovation and creativity is, and it's all about making more impact. And I think it is a long term strategy and it is exciting and it's also difficult it's not going to run smoothly and I suppose if you're embarking on thinking about how you are running services differently um raising more money it's all about the impact that you're making and to hold that close you know why is this important that we are challenging ourselves to do something different because it's not an easy ride but it's for the cause that you work for, fundraise for, deliver services for, that is why it's important. And if you can hold on to that, when things don't go quite to plan, when you find it difficult to make any sort of change happen, that can really help you to push through because, you know, you you work for a charity because you want to make change happen. So you're already good at this and you know that it's not easy, but without it, you know, there's beneficiaries that are not getting the services that they need. Right. Thank you. That's been really interesting. Uh, we will put links to your website and your book and the resources you mentioned and stuff on the webpage along with the transcript. So encourage people to go and check those things out. Thanks very much, Lucy. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter, just search Charity Impact Podcast, or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.